It's hard to believe I'm in the business 40 years, involved with tick deals, just about every facet of real estate uh, we've been involved with. And uh, to be candid with you, I'm passionate about it. I love it. It's uh, other than my wife and kids, it's what I enjoy most. We know that building wealth comes from owning businesses and making investments. Yet why still do nearly half of businesses fail in the first five years? And why do others lose it all in their investments? Welcome to the Wealth Watchers podcast, your resource for building a massive net worth. We bring real stories from real people who are experts in business and investing, who will share secrets and actionable strategies to amassing wealth and achieving success. Brought to you by Happy Camper Capital. And now, your hosts, Justin Hoggett and Adam Lendy. Welcome back to the Wealth Watchers Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Lundy. With me, as always, is my co-host, Justin Hoggett. Justin, what's happening? Hey, Adam, not too much. Uh, you know, it's kind of weird because I just got a notification that I need to renew my ski pass for next year already. Um, that's kind of odd. No, it's spring. It's Yeah, I don't want to be thinking about that, really. But I save a bunch of money by doing so. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. We're having our first 70-degree days of the year in Colorado here. So it's I'm, I'm not even thinking about snow again. Not for a while. No, thanks. Yep. All right. <laughs> well, without further ado, um, let's bring on our guest today. Uh, our guest today is Jack Miller. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Gelt Financial. Jack, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. I appreciate uh, your time, guys. And um, I'm laughing at the renewal of the ski pass. <laughs> I'm in Florida, so we're the op- opposite end of the weather spectrum. That's right. So you don't do much skiing down there, then, huh? No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> not, not even water skiing. No, I guess there are alligators. You can't water ski down there either, huh? Well, I do. <laughs> I, I, ski. I, I, I think people do. I, I just would break a leg if, if I did it. I get attacked by the sea cows. I've got stories behind those. That's another <laughs> another topic. All right, Jack. Well, obviously, we want to jump in and, and talk to you a little bit about what you do and, and get into talking about some commercial real estate in a minute here. But obviously, I always want to get to know the man behind the story first. So um, if you could uh, indulge us with a little bit of your history and maybe understand, uh, helps understand why it is you do what you do. Yeah, you, you know, um, I grew up very, um, we were probably lower middle class, probably poor, but I didn't know it. And I happened to be dyslexic. So going to college, becoming, you know, a doctor, lawyer, accountant, or anything with a profession was out of the question. Uh, rates were incredibly high uh, when I was a teenager in the, in the high teens. And uh, I'm, I was always fascinated by finance, uh, real estate. And I started buying real estate, believe it or not, when I was 17, 18 years old with a friend. And I migrated to real estate. Again, this is going back in the early 80s. Um, to real estate and lending. In 1989, I opened up Gelt Financial as a a private real estate lender. Uh, Today, we lend almost throughout the country in about 42 states. We're first mortgage, uh, traditional debt financing. We're non-bank lenders. So people are coming to us who need money quickly or they they can't go to a bank. So we do a lot of first mortgage lending. We also are investors in real estate. Uh, as buying it ourselves, JV, Preferred Equity, Mez. We've been debtor and possession lenders, tremendous amount of bankruptcy experience, uh, just literally uh, experience everything throughout the past 40 years. It's hard to believe I'm in the business 40 years. Uh, great recessions. At one point, we bought and lost the bank, bought distressed debt, involved with tick deals, just about every facet of real estate uh, we've been involved with. 
And uh, to be candid with you, I'm passionate about it. I love it. It's uh, other than my wife and kids, it, it, it's what I enjoy most. All right. Excellent. Now, I, I, I've got to ask, because obviously starting in real estate at 17, 18, what, what was your first deal? I bought a property. A, a friend of mine at the time, uh, and I took a course, you know, how to make a million dollars with no money down. Uh, you know, I don't know what we paid for it, but we paid for it. It was like a two-day uh, course. We went to it, um, and we started buying properties. And we bought, I think, probably 75 or 80 properties within two or three years. Wow. It's incredible. So before you're legally able to drink, you're able to, uh, you had all those properties, huh? A hundred percent. And we, you know, learned self-understood, made a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, I don't want you to think it's been rosy, uh, the whole way. Uh, I don't have any hair or limited. I'm gray. You know, I joke around. I used to be six, three and thin and, and decent looking, not good looking like you guys, <laughs> but you know, I was beaten up plenty along the way. Um, but at each one of those, uh, you know, times in the economy when I made a mistake or something went wrong, it was a tremendous learning experience. And I look at it back now and say, you know, during the time I was up crying about it, you, you know, but now I look back and say, boy, I learned so much. It really propelled my career. Yeah. Well, tell us about some. What, what, uh, what issues did you, you maybe your first ones, what were, what were some issues you experienced and what did you learn? Well, the first ones, you know, I learned early on the first ones that I was not good at dealing with tenants. So I know this doesn't sound good to publicly say it, but, you know, um, tenants would take advantage of me because I, I, I felt bad for them. So I learned fairly on that I needed to put some distance between me and my tenants. So eventually, you know, not when I was that age, but there came a point in time where, you know, I hired people to to speak to the tenants. So I'm really not looking at their, I don't want to hear that they lost their job, they don't have food for their kids, things like that. So the emotions of it get to me. So that was an early lesson. You, you know, uh, leverage was an early lesson. You know, a lot, right now, the past, the past 10 years, money's been cheap, everything's been good. There's a lot of heroes in the real estate market. And they think they're heroes, and they are heroes. But the reality is the market has made everyone heroes. You know, I lived through 08 to 11, where the market went the other way. And, you know, everyone was a failure. And I was a failure then, too. But the market made me a failure then. So, you know, you, you have to learn to survive in increasing markets, in decreasing markets. Yet we have a very long-term view of things around here. Most people in the real estate business want to be out in and out of deals in six months or three months. They brag how quick they turn their capital. Uh, I, I have a 30 and 40 and 50 year time horizon, and I've always had a very long term time horizon. So look at things a little differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess if you could maybe bring us into how that led you to, you know, I, I guess getting into the lending space, you know, from starting as a real estate investor with your portfolio. Um, it, it was very hard at one point for me to keep growing. And it seemed natural to be in the lending space. Uh, there was capital available to lend. And we started lending and it just became more and more abundant. And I started Gelt in 1989. You know, now there's a million non-bank lenders, private lenders, hard money lenders, whatever you want to call them. Back then there wasn't. There was Fannie, Freddie, FHA, and VA. And the non-bank lenders were very rare of far and few between. 
And we jumped into that space because we saw it as a void. Uh, there were a lot of good, honest, hardworking people that couldn't go to a bank, maybe because they had credit problems uh, or they didn't verify all their income or they needed a loan quick, a week or two. And a bank would take, you know, back then before this is again, you guys can't relate. This is before computers. You, you know, this is before email. It would take, you know, two, three months to get a deal. And I have to tell you that uh, even though today we're, I tell people we're probably twice as expensive as a bank, the amount of people who thank us and the gratitude that we get from our borrowers is unbelievable. Every day I'm getting emails and they're posting to our social media and reviews how thankful they are because we're giving people opportunities when institutions won't give them the opportunity. We're showing them that they can make money when institutions turn them down or, or, or say, oh, you don't have enough money or you don't have the experience. So by us believing in people, we're really enabling people and changing the culture. Really, I, I joke around. I say we're doing more than the government does. The government always talks about helping people and encouraging things, but they're not doing it. We're doing it. Private enterprise is doing it. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, I, I've always joked, you know, it's kind of like a, a loan chart just without the violence, right? Well, you know, look, everyone says that, you know, our average rate on debt is is around 10 percent. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that's loan shark rates. You know, I think it's market rate. You know, um, clearly, if you can go to a bank today, I'm guessing you're getting five percent, four and a half, five. You know, we're 10. If, if, if it's a real small deal or if it's a foreclosure bailout, maybe we'll be 11 or 12. But we're a lot cheaper. You know, think about this way. Here's what I explain it to you. Let's say you have a guy who wants to buy a property. You know, he's at Thanksgiving dinner or Easter dinner or Passover, whatever family dinner he's at. And he's he's a plumber. He's a local guy. And he tells his brother-in-law at dinner, I know this property. I can buy it cheap. I can do the work. I can do everything. We'll make 50 grand. But I don't have the money. His brother-in-law is a doctor who doesn't can't do any of the work. Says, you know, I got the money in the bank. How about we buy the property together? You do the work. I'll put up the money. We'll split the difference. Does that sound fair? Most people would say it's a fair deal, right? Now, you add the cost of the doctor's money and you add the cost of our money. Our cost is infinitely cheaper than giving away 50% of the profits. 100%. So it all depends the way you look at it, you know, as to what it is. The guy who invested in Twitter, you, you know, and got in the early stages, took a big chance. He got a big reward. So we're providing people capital. And I have to tell you, our borrowers are thrilled to pay us our rates. And we tell them we're not cheap, but when they need a deal to close on a Thursday and they call us on a Monday, our capital's there for you. And, and I said that, of course, only kidding. I've, I've, I've always joked. No, 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 no. <laughs> Believe me, I, I, t- I told you in the beginning, I'm passionate about what we do. Yeah. I know you were joking around. And look, I tell people right up front, we're two or three times the cost of bank financing. No question about it. But I can deliver within days. Our tagline is when your bank says no, we say yes. So if you can go to a bank, go to a bank. But if you can't, me and other lenders like me invest in communities. We're there for people to give them the opportunity. And what are the common scenarios that you're seeing for that requirement? For, for the yeah we're, we're pretty much even on the de- I'll divide it in the debt and the equity on the debt side about 50 percent of our deals will call us up in a panic on a Friday oh I'm hard I was supposed to close with the bank and the bank 
won't, can't close. And I'm, if I don't close next Thursday, I'm losing, I'm losing $100,000. Literally, you could hear panic in their voices because they have a closing. Everything's lined up, but either the bank can't or what's happening lately the past year or two, there's so many people out there who are pretending to be lenders who aren't lenders or brokers are baiting and switching people. So about 50% of our deals are really good quality. They can go to a bank. They just need a closing within days. They call us. The other 50%, they have some credit problems, maybe a foreclosure bailout. Uh, they don't verify their income. They're in bankruptcy. There's a reason why they can't go to a bank. And they'll take my loan for a year, two years, three years, four years until they solve their need. So we're opportunity capital. So it's 50-50 on that side. And on the equity side, our PREF equity, our JV, our MES, uh, there are people who are not big enough for institutions. We're generally writing checks between a half a million and three million on the equity side. So they're the people who aren't, they, they can't, they don't want to go to Blackstone and borrow 15 or 20 million, but you know, it's too big for friends and family. So we're an excellent alternative to people for equity um, on that side. Plus, we have a very long horizon where a lot of the institutional shops want out in two, three years or five years, or the institutional shops want the investors to put up more money than they have. With us, we'll put up all the money if we like the deal. And how do you figure out if you like the deal within a couple of days? Have you seen enough? Or, I mean, you've got your- uh, You want to hear the truth? We can usually figure it out on the very first call within the very first. Ask two or three questions. Within 60 seconds, you can pass it out. We've done over 10,000 deals. Uh, it's a lot of deals. You, you have, you know, and today through the internet, you can look up any city, get a cap rate, get vacancy rate, get, you know, market rates. You can go on to three or four listing sites. You can get a feel for the market very, very quickly. Okay. And what are those three questions? Well, you know, give me a property type. Uh, well, uh, let's just say this. He's done a lot of properties. He's done campgrounds. We don't do campgrounds. Okay. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. I, I'll make it up. A, a retail strip center. Okay. Retail strip centers are out of favor, but we love them. So I would ask how many square feet it is. Okay. What's the age? What's the location? From that, I can get a feel for the area. I can tell if it's an A, B, C area, if it's an up and coming. You're, I think you said you're in Colorado. Colorado is a booming area. How many square feet, how much rent you're getting per square foot? I know ballpark that CAM to operate these is about 10 bucks a square foot, my operating costs. So I can back into a value. And I know depending on the class of center and who the tenants are, whether it's an ABC type center, and I can back into a cap rate. You know, an A center, if you have, you know, Chipotle, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, they're selling at four and a half to five and a half percent cap rates. You know, a neighborhood center, seven to eight cap rates. So within 30 seconds of you telling me what the NOI is, I can back into whether we like the deal or not. It's not complicated. It really isn't. You know, uh, we got a call. Uh, I think it was the day of Christmas or the day before Christmas. Someone was buying a strip center in Chicago, a suburb of Chicago. They were buying it at one of the big auction houses. Um, they gave us three or four, and I happen to take that call. They gave us three or four bits of information. We agreed to finance 100% of it. We closed it between Christmas and, and, and they were hard, but their lender backed out. We closed it. Um, they had to close by, I think, the 30th or 29th. We closed it within days. And by the way, they had no written leases. 
They had no historical numbers. We looked at it, and I think it was 37,000 square feet. We said, in good condition, it's worth give or take 150 bucks a foot. They were buying it for, I think, $30 a foot. You could see who was in it, but you didn't know if they were paying rent. We looked at it and said, okay, even if no one's paying rent, you throw them all out, you could rent it for 12 to 12 bucks triple net. Here's the value. We love that deal. Good. Makes sense. I wish more banks would look at the deals that way. <laughs> right. By the way, on 95, 99% of our deals, we don't get appraisals. And, uh, and then it's a lot to do with credit of the purchaser? No, we focus, we're an asset shop. We focus on the property. 95, see, banks are putting 95% of their decision with, they call them the three threes, credit, character, and collateral. Okay. We look at the credit, we look at the collateral, but we're putting 98% of our decision on the collateral, the real estate. And we make every loan and we assume, and this sounds really terrible, but this is the truth. What we say is if the borrower gets hit by a bus right after closing, where are we? A great credit borrower, someone with well intentions, bad things happen to them. They get divorced, they die, all kinds of bad things happen to them. But if you have a great property, at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're hyper-focused on the property and not the individual. So going back a little bit, uh, you know, I, I have not been through a time that, um, well, I, I lived through it, but I wasn't involved to say that. So, uh, you know, the high interest rates in the teens, uh, upper teens, um, how did deals, uh, I mean, it seems like you'd want to be the bank in that situation, lending out at 15% uh, interest rates and, and whatnot. But, you know, what, what, what was the purchasing and borrowing environment like back then? And, uh, and obviously, how's that different than today? It's hard to compare because today you have a really robust secondary market through Fannie and Freddie and you have all these private lenders. Back then, you really didn't have that. You had very localized private lenders. Um, but there was activity. You know, certainly it, uh, interest rates and prices, you, you know, there's a correlation between them. The lower the rates, the higher the prices. Um, the higher the rates, the lower the prices. So, but there was activity. I can tell you, you know, I raised a family. I had kids on high rates. So everyone did business. People look, one thing I learned, people complain at 15%. People complain at 12%. If you're offering 3%, I'd get someone on the phone, quote 3%. They said, I'll go with you if you have 2%. If I would say 2%, they would say 1%. If you want to do a deal, you'll do a deal. If you want, you know, I, I have a sign in, in my office at, at home. It says, if you want to find a solution, you'll find a solution. If you want to find a problem, you'll find a problem. So it, the environment's different. I happen to think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity now um, because so many people, so many deals have been priced to perfection. And people think that rates are only going to go down and, and rents are only going to go up. Let's say the multifamily space is a perfect example. They're doing deals at three and four cap rates. Well. It, 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 I again, I don't wish anyone any harm, but when there's problems in the market and there's market turbulation, I believe there's tremendous amount of opportunities. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess that brings up a good question. So obviously, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that, you know, post 2011 or so, I mean, it was pretty hard to do a bad real estate deal. Like it was really, it was, I mean, you almost anybody looked like a winner if they got in. You know, based on what you've seen in the past, what do, what do you see coming forward and maybe more specific in the commercial space? It's hard to say because, 
you know, the big difference is the, the unpredictable thing which people don't talk about is governmental policy. You know, and that's a whole nother topic. I don't want to really get into it too much because it, it'll take too long. But the way the government responded to the 2008 to 2011 crisis, as an example, as opposed to the COVID crisis is night and day. Okay, so a lot of it depends on the governmental response. And I'm not even talking about interest rates. I'm talking about other responses. Um, but uh, I, I see a lot of opportunity. I see a lot of deals that are priced to perfection are going to go under. I see a lot of people who aren't prepared for interest rate increases. I, I just read, I think last month they raised the rates a quarter percent. I read today they're prepared to raise them 50 basis points in May. So the rates are going to go up, give or take 100, 150 basis points. Self-understood, a big um, variable is what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. You know, that could throw it all out of the loop. But, but taking that aside, rates are going to go up 150 basis points from the low. That's going to have a tremendous impact. And deals that were priced to perfection uh, aren't, aren't going to have it anymore. So in growth areas, you, you know, Colorado happens to be a growth area in Texas and Florida. But you have stagnant areas. You're not going to get the hyper rent increases that you've been getting. People are going to have inflation. There's going to be layoffs. People are going to struggle. So uh, I think there's going to be real opportunity. I think there's going to be a lot of properties lost at foreclosure. I think there's going to be just de uh, debt for sale. And I think there's going to be a lot of blood on the streets, to be candid with you. In what kind of time frame? I don't know. It'll be a, it, it, it could be a slow drip or it could, it, it could happen real quick. It really is going to depend on the Fed. You know, the, the, the Fed can force it very quickly if they tighten up on lending. And not just the interest rates, their attitudes towards banks. Most people don't think about it. But every, almost every loan that's taken out from a car loan to a, a mortgage is underwritten by the federal government, because every bank has to underwrite to federal government to FDIC standards. So if the Fed all of a sudden decides they want to tighten up, it, it'll happen very quick and there'll be more blood on the street. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, I, I've had concern over anybody buying deals, you know, especially you talked about like the multifamily three of four cap. We talked to somebody not long ago who bought a mobile home park at two and a half cap. I mean, and, and I see huge risk there, you know, as you're underwriting deals now, um, I guess, are there any assets or certain underwriting techniques that, you know, you see as being sustainable for the next few years? Well, we like neighborhood strip centers, you know, um, that are immune to the internet. We're scared of big box centers. Um, so e each category has its own ups and downs, what you like and what you don't like. But the same thing, the big box, we've been involved with a lot of big box conversions where you're converting them to self-storage, for example. Um, or you, I, I just literally, we just uh, approved the deal today. Uh, it was a big box. It's converted to a cannabis use. So I think you have to take each deal on its own. Um, and I think there's opportunity. I'm a believer in basis and leverage. If you have low enough leverage, it'll get you through a bad storm. But most people don't, they're, they're over leveraged and they don't have any cash. And they're the ones who implode fast. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I guess, what do you like to see um, from a, I guess, a loan to value ratio? Well, you, you know, we are fairly conservative. In the ideal world, we like 65% loan to values, but we look at our loan to value a little different because we're treating it as a true loan to value, not loan to sale price. Mm -hmm. So we do a, 
I'm guessing 30 or 40 percent of our deals internally were underwriting at a less than 65 loan to value. But in the borrower's eyes, they may be 100 percent loan to value because we're lending them all the money because it's a, a true value add deal. Right. So and, and we do a ton of those. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense because you're doing the debt and the equity. So obviously, but that that really puts it on you to make sure that it's underwritten properly. So I I, I can respect that. Um, I, I guess is there is it relates to and obviously this is going to vary by the asset, but you're looking at the, say these strip centers. Um, you know what sort of cap rates would you be comfortable seeing those at? You know, we think a fair cap rate is seven and a half percent, eight percent for you know a BC type center. Self-understood, if you're in a growth area like Colorado, like Texas, like Florida, the cap rates are lower. You know, if you're in, I'll give you an example. We, we did a, a deal in uh, Ohio that the population was flat and it, it was lo- not only flat every year, it's every, every census, it's losing 5% of the population. We did that. The borrower bought it at a 10% cap rate and it was a gorgeous building. Gorgeous rent roll, but 10% was the market because the reality is the city and the state is just losing people. So, you know, it has to be a little individualized toward the product. Sure. So based on what you've seen and your experience, uh, what would be your top tips if you were working with a new investor who is getting into the space? You know, what would you want to see them consider as they're, you know, looking for and underwriting assets? You know, don't be starry eyed. You know, everyone gets into it. First of all, most people, they get into it. When you have a new investor, they say, oh, I want to buy 50 properties within two years. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I have an expression. I say more people die. And this is this is I believe this is a fact. More people die from indigestion than starvation. And more businesses die from indigestion than starvation. And we see that common with real estate investors. Take it slow, I tell people. And don't be starry-eyed. You know, a lot of you, you'd be amazed at how many uh, real estate investors come our way and we ask them for projections and they send us what the realtor sent them. And we say, Do you think they'll be accurate? They said, We think they'll be accurate. We've done our market research, we think they'll be accurate. They're they're fools. They're they're really fools because bad stuff always happens and they don't take into account. They go into, we talk ourselves into things. I do it too. How many times have I talked myself? Oh, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. It really sucks. A hundred people say it sucks. I tell myself it's fantastic because I want to believe in it. We talk ourselves into believing what we want to believe. And a lot of investors make that mistake. Yeah. Especially when we get emotionally attached to things. (laughs) You can't. I joke around real estate. Don't fall in love with an asset. It doesn't love you back. (laughs) <laughs> yep. We shouldn't be allowed to look at the pictures until we've looked at the books first, I think. <laughs> yeah. And you have to look at the demographics and the whole the whole situation. You know, I was talking to someone before and they called up about an office building in a market that has 70 percent um, occupancy, 30 percent vacancy. And he, he the building that he wants to buy has 100 percent occupancy. And of course, the leases, none of them look legitimate. And the seller gave it to him. And I, and I said, how are you underwriting this? Oh, the, the, the seller said, it's always been 100% occupied. I'll always be able to rent it. Again, nothing wrong with this guy, but he's ignoring the facts on the street. The market is a 70% market in this type of office product. Underwrite it at that. 
Yeah, agreed. And surprise yourself if you outperform it. It's very hard not to get emotional. Look, I struggle with it too. We all struggle with it. You know, we all get invested in a deal the longer we the longer we work it. We want them to work out because if it doesn't work out, we don't get paid. You know, so we we want it to work out, but it's very hard to be very disciplined. But discipline is the key. Amen to that. Well, Jack, obviously grateful for the conversation, and and I'd like to give you an opportunity if anybody listening on the other end um, would like to get in touch with you. How can they reach you? My email is Jack Miller at Gelt Financial, and you're welcome to check out the Gelt Financial website. We're and we're all over social media. We have a booming um, YouTube channel. We're new to TikTok. All of the, the 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 good stuff on social media. Perfect, Jack. And of course, we'll link up in the show notes. And before we part ways, I'm going to turn it over to Justin for the Wealth Watchers Brain Pick. All right, Jack, five quick questions for you. First one, what is your superpower or unique natural ability? Uh, the ability not to get discouraged and not to give up in hard times. Most people get discouraged and the first sight of something going wrong, they just, it's too much for me, they give up. Staying power. I'm dogged. All right. <laughs> Love it. If you were to go back three to five years, what might you have done differently that you wish you could have done? You know, um, we missed a huge opportunity in the multifamily space because I was scared of governmental reaction to Fannie and Freddie. And it was a huge, huge opportunity. But with the risk, I, I wouldn't change my decision. But, you know, it, it's easy to go back and knowing that the government would do what it did. But I wouldn't change my decision. Yeah. And where are you headed in the next three to five years? We're a steady as it goes shop. We're now a second generation company. Two of my sons are in the business. So this business has sustained us for 33 years. So when we look at deals, we look at a horizon of a 30, 40 year horizon. So I think we're going to keep growing. We're going to keep looking for deals. And you have to bend with the economy. Certainly before COVID, you know, no, I, I certainly didn't picture a pandemic coming. But you have to deal with it. So to a certain degree, I'd love to tell you we have a 20-year plan. We're opportunists and we're very reactionary. And we try to take advantage of situations. I think it was, I don't know if it was Rockefeller or Vanderbilt or one of those people said, uh, never let a catastrophe um, go by without, um, I forget the exact word, but take advantage of every catastrophe, basically. Yeah, great. Uh, do you have a favorite book on business or money? You know, I, I have some. Uh, I'm, I'm an avid reader. Um, I have so many. But if I had to pick one, if someone had a gun to my head, I would say it's it's called Behind the Golden Arches. It's a story of McDonald's. And uh, really, the key factor in there as a real estate guy is uh, how they made most of their money in the early days was on real estate when they couldn't make it on hamburgers. So I think go, Behind the Golden Arches is a fantastic book. But there's so many. And I'm, a, I'm an avid reader. I love to read. Yeah, excellent. And last one, what has been your biggest aha moment? I don't know that there was one. I think for me, it was uh, coming to realize I am who I am. You know, for a lot of my, and I'm, I'm about to turn 60, for a lot of my life, I wanted to be somebody else. You know, I wanted to do better or I beat myself up for deals that had gone bad. During the 08 to 011 crisis, uh, it was terrible. I had purchased a bank. We lost a bank. Uh, investors who trusted in me, believed in me, lost millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars. And it took me a long time to come with the grips that, you know, just because something in life happens to you doesn't mean it's your fault. 
and you know to be disciplined and it's hard to sit still when everyone's doing everything so i don't know that it was one i think it was just an aging process as events happened to me sure yeah well good well thank you jack appreciate it my pleasure you guys are good guys oh thank you colorado's a great state i know you're doing a lot of business out there yeah Thank you so much, Jack. Appreciate you having you on today. This has been another episode of the Wealth Watchers podcast. I'm your host, Adam Lundy, from my co-host, Justin Hoggett, and I. Thanks for stopping by. All right, guys. Thanks again. And until next time. This has been the Wealth Watchers podcast. If you enjoyed this content, please subscribe and leave a review on your podcast player of choice. Join us on Facebook, where our members and guests are actively engaging in discussions on wealth-growing strategies by searching for Wealth Watchers Community on Facebook. 